Amen. Thank you, Justin. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Let's continue with the life of David. We're going to be reading a passage from 2 Samuel chapter 2. Now, we're going to be in several chapters, but the one we'll be reading from is chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. Father, in the name of Jesus, um, I, we want to, again, extend our sympathies to um, the Habas family, to the Pike family. Our hearts are with them, and we pray that your grace would sustain them. We pray for others that are suffering, facing surgery and treatment. Lord, sometimes there are so many needs, it appears like uh, we just can't keep up. But Father, you enable us and you help us in every need that is shared with the congregation or with the, the office, I should say, is, is prayed for every day. And I pray, Lord, that as we pray every day and do everything that we can do and serve one another to the best of our ability, we pray today for the grace of the Lord to settle upon folks, lift them, encourage them. Help them. You know what we're up against, Lord. Some of us are here today and we're smiling and we're loving on folks, but nobody knows the deep place through which we're walking. Nobody knows the difficulty. I remember what my pastor said one time, there's a broken heart on every pew. So, Lord, we pray today for the broken hearts. We pray for those that are struggling today. We pray for those that have important decisions to make. We pray for those that are facing treatment for cancer and other difficulties. Lord, wherever we're at, we pause right now to ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit to settle upon every one of us so that the joy of the Lord will be our strength and the victory of the Lord will be our song. You are our hiding place, the psalmist said. You surround us with songs of victory, and you keep us safe from all the intrigues of the devil. So, Lord, as we move into this word today, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for what will be done, though we see it not at this point. Give you praise, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I pastored in the Midwest... Um, I was at a district event. I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was a church growth thing. And I went to a clinic uh, or, or to a session that was about um, how to keep moving when you're in a tough time. Now, the Lord was good. It was a good church, good people. And we were moving. It wasn't a bad time. But I wanted to hear what these men had to say when God doesn't seem to be moving the way you want him to. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. And I heard about this person's technique and that person's technique. And it all, it was all good and it all helped me. I don't know that I might have picked up a thing or two. I, I don't remember. But one thing I do remember, there was a man that pastored, he had pastored in Illinois for when I asked somebody how long he'd been at his church, they said a hundred years. So he, he was an old timer. He reminded me of Jimmy Taylor. If you are an old football fan or a football fan of the old days, um, you remember Jimmy Taylor, a fullback. You don't even see fullbacks anymore hardly, but he was a fullback for the Green Bay Packers. And he wasn't known for his speed but Jim Taylor was known, you know, the, the golden boy. Paul Horning was known for speed and glamorous moves. But when Jim Taylor would get the ball, he would uh, just cover it with both hands like uh, running backs ought to do. And like he was taught in high school in Louisiana. And he just plowed ahead, just lowered his head, and he kicked his legs high. His reasoning, he said one time, was that if I kick my legs high, I've got a good chance of knocking someone out, you know. <laughs> and every once in a while with that Packer sweep, he'd break loose and pick up a big game. But usually Jimmy Taylor just put his head down and picked up three, four, five yards every carry. You say, well, that's not much. Well, it is when you do it every carry. 
It is when you're dependable and get that almost every time you touch the ball. Now that's what David's life has been like to this point. He had a couple of long touchdown runs. Uh, you know, he, he had his Goliath moments, which was like a hundred yard punt return. He had his moments of glory, but you've got to remember those moments of glory we've talked about covered a period of about 10 to 12 years. They were spread out pretty well. And David has been successful because he's just put his head down. Uh, thankfully, it was in prayer and he just kept moving as God directed him. But now God is moving amazingly in his life. See, what that pastor told me at that conference in Illinois, he said, well, he said, God's been good, but he said, we haven't had many bright spots. He said, we just have a, we have a low light that just keeps burning. And somebody asked him, well, what, what did you do to stay encouraged? He said, well, he said, everybody's talked to you about prayer and this and that and the other. He said, I just would go to the train yard every Monday morning. And he's, you know, we're like, what's going on here? And I thought he was going to say he was ministering to the hobos or the homeless or something. He said, I would go to the train yard every morning and say, Lord, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. And we're like, Pfft. he said, Lord, I want something big and powerful to move without me having to get out and push it. That's what we want. Well, that's the way David's life is about to become. He is becoming king today. But it wasn't what you thought it would be. Whenever you reach your destiny, we have a tendency to think that's the time to stop and have a party. And it's okay to stop for a few minutes, break out the Pepsi and celebrate. But when you reach your destiny, there is some important adjustments. There's, some, there's a couple of important checkups that must take place in your life. Now, I want you to understand, I'm, I, I, this is the most difficult two messages, especially today of the whole David series, because this is not a moment where this is what David did, go do it. No, there's some things David did in these next two sermons that are troubling to us. We understand why he did it, and he was a product of his times. He did some things that seem heartless, but David understood a couple of things. This is not a moment where we say, this is where, what David did, go do it. This is a moment where we say, these are two things David understood, and we need to understand the way David understood I don't want to be allegorical. I don't want to say that David doing this is symbolic of this. No, we, we, I'm, I'm telling you, you're going to have trouble with some of the things David did. But you've got to understand that David did it because there were two things that were vitally important to him. And they need to be vitally important to you. Number one, David realized, I have to set my house in order. If I'm going to rule and reign in life, I have to set my life in order. And number two, which we'll talk about next week, if I'm going to rule and reign in life, if I'm going to be everything God told me to be, not only do I set my life in order, my home in order, but I set the kingdom in order. The principles I operate from have to be kingdom principles. And loved ones, I, I hope you're with me today. Because this is so important. Um, there, there is a, a, a disproportionately high numbers, high number of failures of people who seem to reach their destiny. And then after they've reached their destiny, they fumble the ball on the one yard line. I'm sorry to talk so much about football. I, I guess yesterday's just on our minds, you know, grieving the day. That's why we, we, we need to understand this. And I'm not being critical of anyone. The Bible says when you find a brother or sister overtaken in a fault, be spiritual and restore them in the spirit of meekness. Or you yourself could be overwhelmed by the same thing. 
We need to be careful before we start pointing fingers and start trying to analyze why this person failed and that person failed. But I will tell you one thing I have observed. We have, we have developed a culture in the church where your family becomes secondary to your ministry and sooner or later that destroys you or someone. I think of the man who founded World Vision and the man that did phenomenal work reaching children all around the world. And he was famous and he was patted on the back and held up as a great man of God. And he was, but he was held up as a great man of God for saying this, Lord, I love the children of the world. Give me strength to take care of all the children of the world. But Lord, you've got to take care of my children. And we applauded him. We thought that was wonderful. But what that did is at least one of his children was absolutely devastated by that. Do you understand what it does to a child when the church or your class or your ministry seems more important to you than they do? Okay, I think I heard three people on that one. So, let, so, so see, since you're so interested and responsive to that, let's, let's stay there just a moment. I tell you, God smote my heart one time when I was trying, when the church was growing and it was, it was at a point I'd never pastored that many people before and I was trying to get my grip and, and I, I, I found, I, I said, I will never neglect my children in order to pastor a church. You say, well, that's, you got to put God first. You always put God first, but you don't put everything else first. You don't put ministry ahead of your family. You, you, you don't do that. That's, you're never called to do that. You say, well, Jesus said you've got to forsake Father. Let's, that's another sermon for another time, but that does not mean you neglect your family. And it smote me. Uh, I, was, I, I was always with my children, but sometimes I was with them trying to figure out something. And this has only happened once in my whole life. And I pray to God it never happens again. One of my children called me and I was so distracted, I didn't hear daddy. And she said daddy a couple of times. And then the third time she said, Pastor Chitty. And I looked right up. And everybody laughed and I laughed and she laughed, but inside it ripped my heart out. And I thought, God, I want you to help me to never live my life in a way that my kids think the only way to approach me is through my identity as a pastor. That's why we see it over and over again. Men and women of God reach lofty heights, but their family is a sham. Their family collapses and we blame it on an attack of the devil, and it was an attack of the devil. But loved ones, sometimes our families disintegrate because we've been brought into the place that we've dreamed of, and we never understood that one of the first things we've got to do is get our family in order. That's why relationships, long-standing marriages fall apart. That's why men and women that you never thought it would happen to fall apart. It's a heady lofty place to be, to be elevated into ministry so that everyone looks up to you. And it takes, as I say, about three times every quarter, it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. So some of you are about to enter your destiny. And some of you will be so easily deceived if you're not careful, you'll think I deserve a better man or I deserve a better woman. Or I deserve a better whatever. And all of a sudden you forget what my pastor used to say. And I was always amazed that he said this because there was no dancing allowed in our church. But he said, always remember you dance with the one who brung you. In other words, what he was saying is when God begins to bring success into your life, you don't start dancing around with others that may seem prettier or may seem more affluent or may seem better dancers. There's somebody that you brought to the dance or somebody that brought you to the dance is the way he would say it. And you better be sure to dance with the one who brung you. David, he had trouble with his family, but he's going to learn right up front, I've got to put things in order. Now, we, again, 
Some of what David did would be appalling to us because of a different culture. But at the heart of it, this is what you've got to remember this week and next week. David realized if I'm going to be successful, I've got to put my home in order and I've got to put my, my, my ministry in order. Or we would call it the kingdom. We've got to keep the kingdom of God first. Now, the passage we, we want to read. And, and let me say this. The more I read about David and the more I listen to people talk about David... There's a, there's a popular trend right now to minimize David's spirituality. And I hear people say things like this, well, we can't interpret David as a 21st century Christian. I, I understand that. And, and then they say, you know, David was a king way back in the Bronze Age. And, and um, uh, you know, it, it, his brand of religion was not the same as our brand of religion. But loved ones, don't forget this is one that God called a man after my own heart. This is a man who wrote the Psalms. And the Old Testament, even though it was lived out through barbaric times, the Old Testament revelation of God, the Old Testament economy of God, produced some pretty pious people. It produced, and I know there were some that were rough around the edges, but it also produced Abrahams. It produced Job's. And it produced men like Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Elijah and Isaiah. And it also produced David. So I know David was a man of another culture and we never see that more clearly than we do today. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just doing that for the recording. It sounds like the masses are erupting in... Applause. David was a rough-edged man who lived in a rough-edged time, but David was a man after God's own heart. And do not, in an attempt to, quote, deconstruct David, make him over in the light of an ancient man. We need to, we need to understand some things, but don't take away the spiritual sensitivity that David had. He was a phenomenal man. He was a phenomenal man. So this is not, as I said, this is what David did, do it. This is a message. This is what David understood. Now we need to understand the same things. I want to read one verse, 2 Samuel 2. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. Today and next Sunday, we're going to look at a period that covered about seven or eight years. We're, it's what we call the beginning days of David's reign. Because as you know, David became king when he was 30. And he reigned over Judah or, or over a couple of tribes for seven years before all of Israel accepted him as king. Okay? Now, what that looked like during those seven years is that there was perpetual warfare between the remnants of Saul's house that wanted Ishbosheth to become king and the house of David. Now, the, uh, and, and David won uh, over the passage of time. By the time we, we will get to the end of the story today, David will be accepted by all of Israel as king. Now, the story in Scripture covers 1 Samuel 29 through 2 Samuel 4. I, I, I should have expressed that better. Through 2 Samuel 4, and we'll, we'll, we'll be introduced to what happened in chapters 5 and 6. Chapters 5 and 6 is David setting the kingdom in order. That's what we'll talk about next week. But we'll, we'll need to refer to those chapters a little bit. In 1 Samuel 29 and 30, that's the story we covered last week. It was the story of the ransacking of David's city of Ziklag and um, everything being taken away. But David fully recovers and it's, a, it's an amazing story. David, David was being threatened by his men. David had, this was arguably the darkest day of his life since God told him he was going to be king. But the Bible says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. His 600 men took off after the enemy. 200, you remember, they're, they're emotionally spent. They're exhausted. They've gone in a different direction for battle. They get back to find that everything's gone. So with very little rest, they start chasing 
the captors of their families. 200 men are exhausted. Maybe they were older, maybe they were weaker. We don't know what. But 200 men stayed behind and 400 went into battle. Now the battle was completely successful. And when David came back to divide the spoil, he starts splitting the spoil 600 ways. And the 400 men that went with him said, hey, we're the ones that went and fought the battle. But David did something that showed his amazing heart, showed his wisdom. He did two things. Number one, he says, in my kingdom, or in, in, as long as I'm in charge, he's, he's not king yet, as long as I'm in charge, the ones who sit, stay with the stuff receive the same reward as those that are on the front lines. And that's the way the kingdom of God operates. There are support people. Now, there were some up here on the platform earlier that we, we are, are in the limelight, and rightly so. Their gifts have distinguished them. I have the privilege of sitting up here and, and preaching, and I'm in the limelight for better or worse. But I want to tell you the reason we have churches is people that are behind the scenes, watchmen, ushers, nursery attendants, childcare, uh, Sunday school classes. And whether you're in the limelight or not, you share in the reward of what God is doing. That's established by David. And David goes with the plunder that they had taken a part of it. And he met with the elders of Israel and he said, this is for you and your people. This is for you and your people. So David understood right away, I think God is moving. I think some trains are moving without me pushing. And he says, I want to remember those that helped me get here. And he honored the elders of Israel and he honored the men. That was chapters 29 and 30. Chapter 31 it's the story of how Saul, Jonathan, and the other two sons of Saul died. Saul is wounded and he begs his armor bearer. He said, my wound is terminal. Don't let me be taken captive by the enemy. They'll, they'll abuse me. They'll mock me. Please kill me now. And, and the armor bearer was terrified. He, he, said, he said, I've been with you twice when David had a chance to kill you. And he said, you don't touch the Lord's anointed. I, I'm sorry, I can't. So Saul fell on his sword uh, and, and died. And the armor bearer was so terrified, he fell on his sword. That's in chapter 31. Um, Saul is dead now. Jonathan is dead. Jonathan's two brothers are dead. Saul is beheaded. And Saul and Jonathan and the sons are taken to a place called Bethshan or Bethshan. And uh, it was near uh, Gibeah. You, you can see when you stand at Beth John, you can see Gibeah in the distance, and um, or, or uh, Gilboa rather in the in the distance. And they brought the bodies to Beth John and hung them on the gates of the city. And the men of Jabesh Gilead, who were Jewish, realized we can't allow our king. We can't allow Jonathan. Uh, to be treated like this. So they, they sneak in under the cover of darkness, cut the bodies down, take them away. They burn the bodies, which was against Jewish law, but they burn the bodies so the bodies could not be desecrated. And they take the bones and bury the bones in a place of honor. Chapter 31. We turn the page to first, or excuse me, to second Samuel chapter one. And um, what we find is David is in mourning for Saul and his sons. Can you, can, that shows you something about the size of David's heart because Saul had spent the last nearly, you know, a decade or so trying to kill David. So he's mourning for Saul. He's mourning for, for Jonathan. And a, and a Malachite who was serving in the Israeli army, am, am I, are you following me? I know this is a lot to keep up with. Um, he comes to David bringing Saul's crown and the band of, uh, you, you see sometimes in movies around the bicep of a mighty warrior would be a gold band. And uh, it, it belonged to a distinguished warrior. So he brought the band off of Saul's arm and the crown off of his head. And he says, Master, I come to tell you to David, he says that 
Saul and Jonathan are dead. David trying to put together what has happened. All he's getting is bits and pieces. This is before the 24-hour cable news. And he says, how do you know they're dead? And he explained what happened. He said, except he changes the story trying to get in good with David. He says, well, Saul received a terminal wound. I knew he wasn't going to live. So I killed him myself to spare him and to honor you. And I brought you his crown. I brought you his band of warriorship. And David said, let me get this straight. You did this, this, this. And David surprised this guy to no end. He says, what possessed you to think that you could kill the Lord's anointed? I had opportunity to do that and I wouldn't. You know that. So what makes you think it's the thing for you to do? And the guy's caught flat-footed. And then David does the first thing we don't understand. He looks over to one of his men and he says, kill him. And he did. You say, well, this is, boy, this is the Bible. Didn't God maybe raise him from the dead? Nah, they, 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 they killed him. And then David, after killing this man, writes a song of lament for David, or excuse me, for, for Saul and for Jonathan. And I want to tell you, there's a, there's a work going on in a heart when you can sing a song of lament for your best friend and your enemy at the same time. Chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. David is made king over Judah. He's now King David. The war goes on for seven years. There's a little sidetrack. This is to show you the turmoil of the times. Joab, uh, Joab's little brother is angry with Abner. So Joab's little brother who is probably a very young warrior, starts chasing Abner. He's going to kill Abner. Abner was the commander of Saul's army. And, and Abner knows he can take this guy. He doesn't want to. He says the political fallout of this would be terrible. So Abner flees, not out of fear, but he keeps, he keeps yelling over his shoulder, you don't want to do this, boy. Go on home. There's been enough killing today. And the guy just keeps closing in. And Abner realizes, I, I will have no rest till I kill him. So Abner does a strange thing. He's carrying his spear. But instead of turning with the spear, Abner, who is a seasoned warrior, uh, experienced beyond our dreams, decades of war, he holds his spear facing forward. And as the brother of Joab approaches, he rams it back, not the pointed end, but the other end, and it goes through Joab's little brother. And that was a way of saying, I had nothing to do with this. It's, it's sort of, in, in, our, in our vernacular, it's like I, he rear-ended me. And Joab's brother is killed. And Abner says, I, I, didn't, want, I didn't want to do this. I, I have nothing to do with it. So Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, is anointed by king uh, by Abner to be king of Israel in Saul's place in chapter 3. And David does something that again we don't understand. He goes to uh, or he sends uh, an emissary to Ishbosheth and says right now give me my wife Michael back. You say, "Whoa, what?" Yeah. It's been uh, Several years, probably at least seven years, as many as 10 years, that David was forced to flee. Michael kind of tried to cover for him. And Saul, in an attempt to uh, be angry with Michael for helping David and in an attempt to make David miserable, he took David, David's wife, Michael, and gave her to another man. Now, David says, I want my wife back. You say, uh, boy, that was cruel. Just, she's already been given to another man. But you've got to understand, if David did not take the daughter of Saul back, there would never be the settled question of who's really king. You say, well, that's not much of a reason. It was all David needed. 
And Joab goes and grabs her and says, you're coming to your husband. And it's this pitiful picture of her husband that she has loved and been with for these years, weeping, going behind the horse that she's riding on, begging for his wife to come back. And she never saw him again so far as we know. She becomes the wife of David again, but she's never happy. David's never happy with her. It was a purely political move. Okay, so you're not shouting yet. Let's keep going. <laughs> Ishbosheth, who is Saul's remaining son, who is king, begins to accuse Abner of treason and treachery, accuses him of sleeping with one of the royal wives. And Abner looks at Ishbosheth, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, Abner looks at Ishbosheth. And let me tell you, Abner and Joab, these are massive guys. I mean, it, 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 I don't know how big they were, but they were seasoned warriors that everyone feared. And Abner says to Ishbosheth in so many words, Look, I made you king. I can unmake you as king. The Bible would say a little bit later that Abner was strengthening himself in the house of Saul. It could be that Abner intended to be king one day. And Abner. Um, has a falling out with Ishbosheth. So Abner goes to David's camp, but his heart is still to be king of Israel. I know it's confusing, but it's about to end, okay? I'm taking you down rabbit trails that end. They fall off a cliff. <laughs> Joab says, uh, well, welcome to David's army. And Abner says, well, you know, I'm, if I play my cards right, I could be king over all of Israel. And Abner welcomes him. And as he welcomes Abner, he kills Abner for killing his little brother. So now Abner's gone. Um, Ishbosheth is now murdered in uh, 2 Samuel 4. Now that's where the story stops today. You see, we're in this just this total chaos. Now next week in 5 and 6, David will say, this is how we'll run the kingdom and this is how we will welcome the presence of God. But David says, I've got to take care of my house first. The, the central truth is that authority and accountability go hand in hand. And let me explain what I mean by that. Accountability is often an overworked word. But David is exemplifying. I don't know that he understood it with all the Christian graces that we do. But David understood, if I'm going to be ruling in life, I have got to learn to honor people and be accountable in the way that I live. They need to look at my household and say everything's in order. They need to look at the way we do warfare in the kingdom and say everything's in order. They need to look at the way we worship and say everything is in order. It, it was the way Solomon would pray later when God said, you know, ask me for anything. And Solomon's request was for wisdom to lead and serve your people. Solomon understood how important this principle was. That's why David gave gifts to the elders of Israel. That's why David said the 200 will be just as honored as the 400. Even Jesus modeled this <coughs> by saying in this world, those that live by the world system lord it over one another when they get to the top. But Jesus said, it shall not be this way with you. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. Now let's go to think it over for a moment. The death of Saul and Jonathan was a traumatic experience for David. He's probably struggling with some form of survivor's guilt. He's lost his closest friend. There were terrible decisions made at Gilboa by the armies of Israel. And this moment of transition was like being caught in a lightning storm. I mean, if you've ever really been in a lightning storm, you, I, I'm not talking about a little lightning here, a little thunder there. But I mean, if you've ever been right in the midst of something, especially if you're near where lightning strikes, you are terrified. Or if you're not, you ought to be. The Amalekite mercenary comes. I told you about him. David kills him. Abner appoints Ishbosheth, who killed and uh, subsequently. Um, uh, Joab's brother is killed by Abner. Abner's accused of moral impropriety and treason. Abner defects to David, but is killed by Joab. Now that brings us up nearly to the end of this story today. The reign of Ishbosheth 
Um, he's murdered by two opportunistic brothers. But now after seven years of war, the northern tribes accept David as king. Do you understand that these seven years were years of intrigue, treachery, assassination, intense bloodshed. But David is king at last. This is number two on your outline. David is now 37 years old. Um, he's right at the peak of his life um, in, in just about every way. And the complete fulfillment of his dream has come, even though it's taken about 20 years. Now, I want to say this to you before we move toward the end. As you and I move toward our destiny, you will almost certainly face conflict, hardship, and enemies. And during this time, hear me, loved ones, this isn't popular preaching, but you must learn self-denial and self-control. In David's 37th year, the prime of life, he is now beginning part two of his journey. We just ended part one, getting to the throne. Now we're going to find out what it's like to be in the throne. See, this is why God, you know, the Bible says this, it's a mysterious verse. It says, therefore shall the Lord wait so that he might be kind to you. That's not the way I pray. I say, Lord, if you want to be kind, let's get moving. If you want to be kind, remember your promise. I, I mean, I, I, I've been there. I, I have, you know, it's a frustrating thing to know all the platitudes and still want God to hurry up. But you see, loved ones, you're not really ready to even begin to walk in your destiny until you realize that the throne is not the end of the journey. Your ministry is not the end of the journey. Your, your marriage even is not the end of the journey. David has mastered part one of this journey because there's blood on his hands. He's a bloody man, but it's the right kind of bloodshed for the most part. Now, let me say this. Number three, there's some things that need to get, need to be settled early on. His capital, that's what we'll talk about next week. And uh, David is going to take a, a, a little town it's a little town. As, as I've said before, the, the old city of Jerusalem could fit on our property. It, it was about 11 acres, and I think we're like 12 and a half, something like that. Jerusalem could, could fit on our property. But there were two things about Jabus, as it was called then. It was a center of pagan worship, including child sacrifice, number one. And number two, it was on a high mountain, uh, well, a, a high place. You, you, you can tell you're on a mountain, but it's not like the Rockies. And it was, it, it was almost impossible to attack. Next week when David says we're going to take Jabez, um, they say, hey, we'll, we'll put our handicapped folks out here and even they can keep you out. But it would not be won by bringing down walls, but by sending men in through a water tunnel. We'll talk about that next week. So David establishes a center of government, and it was clear that Israel was no longer just a tribal confederation. But David says, all right, I've, I've got to establish some things about government, but I've got to be sure that my life is in such a way that my claims are in order. Now, loved ones, I'm telling you, this is not go do what David did. This is understand what David understood. In fact, by the time David becomes king, he has seven wives that we know of. Seven. Um, and, and some of you are laughing. Some of you are crying. Some of you are, are impressed. Now, let, me, let me say this. There's three things I want to say. God allowed a lot of things. Please do not take God's allowing things as God's endorsement of things. See, God allowed divorce, and, and, and there are grounds for divorce. There are legitimate grounds for divorce. But God allowed divorce at its earliest conception because of the hardness of men's hearts. Wasn't that, now I don't say that to put folks that are divorced under any kind of condemnation. There are reasons for divorce. There, there are there are. Things that are remedied only by divorce. I know that. I know that. 
Now, people that have never been divorced tell you to just, you know, it's never good. Well, that's another sermon for another day, for another time. Second thing I want to say is that this was a period of time when women were not treated with the dignity and honor that they deserved. They were little more than property. Now, in the Old Testament, you see men and women loving each other. And you see healthy, functional families. But oftentimes, a man would view his daughters as a way to get income from, from the dowry when they got married. And you've got to understand this. That was the culture of the times. That was not the law of God. All right, you need to understand that. Don't say God treated women bad in the Old Testament. God has always honored women and God has always cherished women. But fallen man has not always done that. They've mistreated women. They've endorsed slavery. And that was never right. But God allowed certain things. And I would recommend a book to you um, called If Christ Had Never Been Born by um, James Kennedy the guy that did uh, develop evangelism explosion. He's in heaven now. But what if Christ had never been born? And he talks about seven or eight trends that are functional in our society today that would have never been functional had it not been for Christianity. And one of Kennedy's chapters is on the liberation of women. I'm not talking about women's lib. I'm talking about the true liberation of women to an equal status with men. Kennedy makes a, does a good job of saying that's a result of the church. Christianity brought women out of this horrible situation that culture had them, or at least where Christianity has gone. So you've got uh, Michael, and she was a wife, one through political ties. Um, she helped David escape from Saul. They were separated for years. She was given to, to Palti. It's a heartbreaking story. It was, she was not free to marry another man. But her daddy was king, and sometimes kings make stupid decisions, and that was one of Saul's. She was never a happy part of David's life. It was a political arrangement. There was Abigail. She was the widow of Nabal. Now, Abigail is my favorite of David's wives. She seems the most virtuous. She seems the wisest. She seems the best of all of the women that David married. But to me, when you look at David's relationship with Abigail, it was almost an opportunistic and, and uh, selfish move. As well, she was married, she's not now, she's pretty, she cooks good. You'll be my wife too. Abigail, perhaps the wisest and best of David's wives, is never allowed to come alongside of him as his favorite wife. There was a Hinoam of Jezreel, uh, Micah, that was, that was a pure political alliance. Her daddy was the king of Geshur. She was the mother of Absalom. Can you imagine marrying somebody? And in our culture, it'd be like, well, if you'd marry so-and-so, then our family's land will be joined together and we'll be powerful. That's what David did. Hagith, Abital, Eglah. And I want to say one more thing about David's wives. David was establishing a legitimacy to his home in the culture of the times that's not what we're saying. Don't go marry a bunch of wives. Don't, don't mistreat people. But the principle I'm trying to get across to you, without, without preaching an allegory, the principle I'm trying to get is that David understood if I'm going to be a legitimate ruler, if I'm going to be a legitimate king, I need to have my family in order. Now, there's also a move among young Christians today. It's amazing to me. Um, you'd be surprised how many Christian groups are saying we need to go back to the days of, uh, of multiple wives. It was permitted in the Old Testament. It was never God's plan. Uh, the plan of God for marriage has always been one man and one woman who come together, and that was God's ideal for marriage. Now, you, you have civil unions, you have agreements, you have all of those things, but that's not marriage. And, and I will say this, there's a lot of men who had multiple wives, and they're just referred to in passing. But unless I'm missing it, every time there's any kind of detailed story, there was a problem that resulted from having more than one wife. And it's not the wife's fault. Wives are designed to be loved by their husbands with all their heart. Men aren't able to love two women the way they ought to love the women. He's not able to do that. 
You say, well, I'd like to try. Well, <laughs> let, let me tell you, it's not difficult for a man to have sex with more than one woman, but I don't believe a man can truly love more than one woman. I don't believe it can be done. Now you say, oh, I feel for my wife, but I also feel for my mistress. One of them is not being loved the way they ought to be loved. And I can tell you, it's your, it's your wife. No, I, 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 think, I think, sometimes I think our young Christians, because pastors have failed and churches have failed, sometimes we just need to immerse them into the Bible and say, you can't come out till you read it and understand it. <laughs> what are the Christian life lessons? Well, let's finish up. Y'all have rambled too long today. Number one, remember those who made your success possible. When God begins to bless you, remember those who made your success possible. The 200 men who were exhausted. You know, see, they'd been, they'd been serving David for a decade. Maybe they were exhausted because when they came to David, they were in their youth. Now they're middle-aged and they've lost a step. Maybe they were middle-aged and now they're old men. And they weren't able to keep up. But David remembered where they had been and what they had done. And he gave um, um, spoils of war to the, to the leaders of Israel, many of whom had helped David. Um, and, and can I tell you this? This is, this is tough. This is tough for me. But you need to understand that you even need to understand that your enemies may have made your success popular. I told you back earlier in the year about a man, or was it last year? I can't remember. Anyway, you remember me telling you about a man that gave me more trouble than anybody I've ever pastored in my life. I considered him the most difficult person I'd ever pastored in all my years. Everything he did was to make my life miserable, and he was good. And when he died... I, I was, I, I, it wasn't, I didn't say, oh, hallelujah. But I was baffled by what I felt. I didn't know what I felt. I, I wasn't mourning his loss. I, I really wasn't mourning his loss, but I certainly wasn't rejoicing over his loss. And for days I said, Lord, you've got to help me know how to handle this. I want to dignify and I want to honor this man you died for. But, but, I, but I don't know how. And in the process of all that, I won't repeat that whole story. But in the process of that, the Lord said, everything you are today, the attitudes you have, the philosophy you embrace, the ministry style you have, the core values of your life, every one of those things, you owe him a thanks because he developed every one of them in you. And I, I said, I, that's, that's the devil. I said... <laughs> He's, he's, the devil's masquerading as an angel of light. But you know, over the, now I'm not telling you that now he's my best buddy and I have a picture of him in my room or no, I, I, I'm, I don't want him in my life. I haven't wanted him in my life for a long time, but you know what? From God's perspective, he was a tool that God used to change me into what I needed to be. Every attitude I have that is life started with his death. I don't mean his death. I mean his attitude of death toward me. So remember those that made your success possible. You say, yeah, Pastor, I don't know about that. Well, let me tell you, David sang that beautiful song of lament, and it was about Jonathan and Saul. Can you take your, your best friend and your worst enemy and sing a song of praise about both of them? Sure. Oh, Lord, I thank you for Jonathan. He was so wonderful. Best friend a guy ever had. And I thank you for Saul, even though you didn't kill him soon enough. Oh, boy. You don't even know how to sing a song about Saul and Jonathan, but David was able to do it. That's number one. Here's number two. The greater your gift, the greater your need for accountability. Uh, 
especially those of you that feel you're being squashed or held back or not being recognized. The Lord may be deliberately holding you back until you are able to rein in the potential arrogance that comes from your gift. Um, I, 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 I'm going to tell you, R.T. Kendall was right. The worst thing that can happen to somebody is to succeed before they're ready. And the more talent you've got, the more influential your ministry may be, the probability is that the longer you're going to have to wait for fulfillment. Because I want to tell you one of the things that ought to scare you spitless. It really ought to. This ought to keep you awake at night from time to time. The greater your anointing, the more accountable God will hold you. Paul told this to the teachers. He says, you're going to incur, when you stand before God, you're going to have a stricter judgment because God has given you a ministry to teach and lead. And think of Moses. I, 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 I mean, I understand it, but I, but I don't understand it. Out of all that Moses did and all that Moses accomplished and the difficulty he had with the children of Israel, God tells him to speak to the rock and Moses in just a moment of exasperation strikes the rock. And, and you know, what's the big deal, God? The water came. But what seemed to be a frivolous, silly thing, a momentary lapse, God said, Moses, with all you've been through, with all that you know, with all those sessions with me on the mountain, for you to strike when I say speak, no, it doesn't make sense to us. But he says, you can't go into the land. You say, well, there's reasons for it, Pastor. Hey, let me tell you, I've studied it backwards and forwards. And it's any way you look at it, it's disproportional. The punishment's disproportional to the offense. Any way you look at it, it's not fair. You're saying God's unfair? No, I'm saying God is so fair that I don't understand his fairness. The greater the gift, the greater the need for accountability. And here's the last thing. Remember to keep God's interests first. Or in other words, keep his kingdom first. Now this, I told you this was a difficult message. It's difficult to preach. Not because it's hard things. It's just, it's hard to get anybody to shout over this. <coughs> it's hard to have an altar call because probably if you've got to deal with some things, it's things you don't want to deal with publicly. But this is what David understood, and this is what you and I need to understand. As a church, as a family, as an individual, two things have to be settled before the days of fullness really begin in your life. You've got to get your home in order. That's what David was doing, even though he had a different standard and, and an awkward set of things he was working on. David said, I have to have a home that is in order. I have to have a home that says what it should say and represents what it should represent. And, and loved ones, I, I want to tell you this. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't even, I, I couldn't even point out somebody that I'm, I think is guilty of that. But I tell you what I do know in a church our size, I guarantee you there are people that have their eye on notoriety rather than faithfulness. I guarantee you there are people that, that think if I can just get to the right role in ministry, all my problems will be solved. And my wife or my husband, they've just got to come along and understand what, you know, God's call on my life. I, I want to say this. I want to say this one more time, and, and, I, and I need to move on to, to next week's lesson. Do not make the mistake of thinking your work for God is the same as your relationship to God. See, I, I grew up not because I was taught this overtly, but because it makes sense. I would always have to put my ministry first because I have to put God first. But you know what I found out? I found out that sometimes putting God first meant leaving a ministry or choosing my family over my ministry. And we're not taught to do that because we think if we put ministry second or third, we put God second or third. No, God has to always be first. But I want to tell you, this thing called ministry, I've got a wife 
that I'm dragging along with me. I've got children and grandchildren that I'm, gra I'm dragging along with me. I don't mean they, they have to be dragged, but you know what I'm saying. I'm saying it's not just me on the journey. Uh, Robertson McQuilkin over at CIU came under such intense criticism when he resigned at the peak of his ministry. He resigned to care for his wife who had Alzheimer's. He managed it as long as he could. And then he said, I'm going to have to step aside. You would be surprised at how many Christian leaders said he was failing God. Give the care of your wife to someone else. You have a ministry to perform. And he said something that I have cherished. He said, there are some vows more important than others. And my vow to my wife supersedes my vow to a university. On another occasion, he said, my promise to my wife is more important than my promise to the ministry. And he got shot at from so many sources because he said, I'm going to care for my wife. And he, I, he, he was criticized for that, but I want to tell you, he did more to help people in ministry than you can imagine by saying there are some promises more important than others. Now, he didn't turn his back on God. But he had the audacity to say, my identity as a man of God will not be linked to the work that I do. It will be linked to the family that I serve. Now next week we're going to talk about how we worship and how the kingdom of God affects our lives. But this is what I want to ask you. Where are you in your relationship, not just with God, but with your family? Do you know that as important as warfare and, and inheritance and, and destiny was to the children of Israel, the law of God was that when a man married a woman, the first year of their marriage, he was exempt from military service. You say, well, there were battles to be fought. There were wars to be won. There was territory to be gained. But do you know from God's perspective, you know what God was saying? He was saying to every young man, I want to say it to every young man here, maybe you're thinking about getting married, maybe you've just got married, maybe you've just been married long enough to know you did it wrong. Maybe you've been married like I have 40 years and you're still working through things. This is what God says, your destiny will come along fine. You win the heart of your wife. You've won her hand, now win her heart. The first year, you be sure that you and her are on the same page. And don't ever, God says, don't ever use my ministry as an excuse to defraud your wife. I'm going to go on over to the other auditorium. No. Would you stand with me? Oh, but, beloved, I love you. I love you. You see why this is a tough one? Because some of you have been so focused on preaching or teaching or evangelism, you haven't, you haven't even regarded your wife and kids. You say, Pastor, I don't think you got any business talking about that. I don't know. But I think, I think, the Holy Spirit's driving it home. I think you understand what I'm saying. Father, I, I, I hope I've explained this well. I, I, I don't know of a message in a long time that I've had more difficulty articulating. And I, I hope that, well, I know you have helped me. I hope I yielded to your help. Father, we want to be the church that you want us to be. We want to be the ministers that you want us to be. We want to be the pastors you want us to be. We want to be the, the teachers or ranger commanders or impact girl leaders. Whatever our, our, our ministry is, we want to be the best we can be. But Father, before we will ever inherit the fullness of what you have, we need to stop on the home front and we need to put it in order. It, it, it's not the difficult things like David had to do of taking back a wife that didn't want to be with you and, 
balancing affection and attention and intention between seven women. But Lord, you did give us some pretty lofty commands. Husbands, love your wives the same way Christ loves the church. Wives, honor your husband. Parents, don't exasperate your children. Children, obey your parents as though you were obeying the Lord. Father, in an age that is attacking family with renewed vigor and vim, in, in, a, in an age where the law sometimes would seek to even take children from us if we don't follow their pattern, I pray that you would build our houses strong because the scripture says, unless the Lord builds a house, unless the Lord builds a house, everything we do is in vain. So help us build our house. Can we do this today? If, if you want to give your heart to the Lord, I invite you to come and get with one of the pastors or, or one of the ministry teams. They'll have the um, identification tags on. But can we bring our families to the Lord today? Can we bring our children? Maybe it's a child you've given up on. Maybe it's a child that's in rank, overt rebellion. Can we bring our parents to the Lord? Can we, can we say, Lord, of all you're doing in my life, I want to stop and be sure that I'm putting my house in order. Now, when you come, that's a risky thing because the Lord may say, you need to apologize. You need to repent. You need to do this or you need to do the other. But loved ones, I want to tell you this. I want to pay the price for leading my family into the kingdom and I don't, want to, I don't want to cause my children or my grandchildren or my wife, I don't ever want them to feel like ministry, church, or anything else is more important than they are. This isn't for condemnation. If you're feeling guilt and condemnation, you're, that you didn't get that from me or the Lord. But you might feel conviction. You might feel the compassion of the Lord. Can we end our service that way? Just as many of you as can, or as many of you as would, would you just come and bring your children and your wife, your family, would you come and bring all of that to the Lord?